I'm Paul Heron, and this is episode 46 of the Ani Eastin podcast. And what a treat I have for you today. A little more than a month after Ani Eastin's death, which occurred on January 14, 1977, there were celebrations of her life in several places around the world, most notably in Los Angeles and New York. Today, from the New York event, we have the privilege of hearing feminist icon Kate Millett reading from Neen's diary about June Miller. I must note that the original recording was a sonic mess, but with some technology I was able to restore it to its current condition. And I'm really glad I did, because listening to one woman pioneer discussing another is truly rewarding. So, without further ado, let's go back to February 22, 1977, and listen to Kate Millett's tribute to Annie Eastney. Kate Millett has prepared a reading from the diaries, A Nice Name, A Woman. I had an appointment with a nice name for the Columbia. I had waited 10 years for her. So, uh, we have this instead. A nice is hugely important to any woman, any woman alive now who writes. Above all, I think. She's an innovator, and that's, I think, how anybody matters to anybody anyway. They have got to make dare to do things. Superbly, she dares to do everything. Now, one, even Doris Lessing, calls us as much in their debt for the contribution which Lane has made to autobiography and autobiographical writing, which is the main force and thrust of what writing from women is now and will be for a while, as in this period we discover ourselves and explode after all that silence. Whatever else she gives us, a nice name gives us a great deal as a, a woman artist and about being a woman artist. As both a writer and a sculptor, I felt a long, long lonesomeness for the presence of other women artists. What is the artist's life as lived by a woman? And the diaries give us that. They give us a great deal about being a woman in an age, uh, a nice, coming from the 20s and 30s, an age where it was enormously crucial, right after the first wave of feminism and just before the second one. Quotations by a nice name on what it is to be a woman writer and what it is to be a woman and so on and so forth are probably familiar to you. They're beautiful in that they are so honest. Of all the vacillation, all the ambiguity, finally becoming ambi- ambition and determination and certitude. You can trace that through the diaries. I wanted to read something rather different from that, though. Something that is, I think, more remarkable than most statements. Uh, and it's a passage which I think is our most unique in writing until this time except perhaps for Violet Le Duc, because it's a passage in which Anais describes the attraction of women for a woman, the attractiveness of women in herself, woman herself. And this is felt and realized beautifully throughout the whole first volume in relationship between Anais and June, the wife of Henry Miller. Rarely do we have a passage of such passion and glow and so forth as one woman describes another. 
but also rarely do we have anywhere by anyone a passage so full of the dangerous charm of falling in love. The eroticism of this passage is amorous. It's involved with fascination, with the perfume and nuance of desirability, and with the sympathetic nature of one of these creatures to the other, as they meet and hardly understand what it is they feel. We agreed to meet June and I. I knew she would be late, and I did not mind. I was there before the hour, almost ill with tension and joy. I could not imagine her advancing out of the crowd in full daylight, and I thought, could it be possible? I was afraid that such a mirage could not be. I was afraid that I would stand there exactly as I had stood in other places, watching the crowd and knowing no June would ever appear. June was a product of my imagination. As people came into place, I shivered at their ugliness, at their dryness, their likeness to each other in my eyes. Waiting for June was the most painful expectancy, like awaiting a miracle. I could hardly believe she would arrive by these streets, cross such a boulevard, emerge out of a handful of dark, faceless people, walk into that place. What a profound joy to watch the crowd scurrying and then to see her striding, resplendent, incredible towards me. I could not believe it. I held her warm hand. She was going to call for mail. Didn't the man see the wonder of her? Nobody could ever have called for mail at the American Express who looked like this. Did anyone ever wear shabby shoes, a shabby black dress, a shabby blue cape, and an old violet hat as she wore? I could not eat before her, but I was calm outwardly with that Hindu placidity of bearing that is so deceptive. She drank and smoked. I was so calm before her, yet I could not eat. My nervousness gnawed me deeply. It devoured me. She was quite mad in a sense, I thought, subject to fears and manias. The talk was mostly unconscious. The contents of her flowering imagination are a reality to her. But what is she building so carefully? A heightened sense of her own personality, a glorifying in it. Is she obviously an enveloping warmth of my admiration? In the obvious and enveloping warmth of my admiration, she expanded. She seemed at once destructive and helpless. I wanted to protect her. I protect her whose power is infinite. At moments, her power is so strong that I actually believed it. And she told me her destructiveness was unintentional. I believed her. Did she try to destroy me? No, she walked into my house and I was willing to endure any pain at her hands. Is there any calculation in her whose destiny is beyond her control. It comes only afterwards when she becomes aware of her power and wonders how she can use it. I do not think her power is directed. Even she is baffled by it. Yet, in a taxi, I could hardly think clearly when she pressed my hand to her breast, and I kept her hand, and I was not ashamed of my adoration, my humility, for she is older. She knows me. She should be leading me, initiating me, taking me out of smoky fantasies into experience. The day we had lunch together, I was ready to follow her any perversity, any destruction. I had not counted on my effect on her. I was so filled with my love for her, I did not notice my effect on her. Jane came to my house on Monday. I wanted an end to the mistress, the climax to the suspense. 
I asked her curly and curtly, as Henry might have asked. Do you love women? Have you faced your impulses towards women? She answered me so quiet. Jane was to ask him. I have faced my feelings. I am fully aware of them. But I have never found anyone I want to live them out with so far. I am not sure what it is I want to live out. And then she turned away from my questions and said, gazing at me, what a lovely way you have of dressing. This dress, it's rose. It's old-fashioned fullness at the bottom, the little black velvet jacket, the lace collar, the lacing over the breast. How perfect, how absolutely perfect. I like the way you cover yourself, too. There's very little nudity, only your neck, really. I love your turquoise ring and the coral earrings. Her hands were shaking. She was trembling. I was ashamed of my directness. I was intensely nervous. She told me that at the restaurant she had wanted to look at my bare feet and sandals, but that she could not bring herself to stare. I told her I had been afraid to stare at her body, how much I had wanted to. We talked brokenly, chaotically. She now looked at my feet and sandals and said, They are flawless. I have never seen such flawless feet. And I love the way you walk, like an Indian woman. When we sat on the couch downstairs, the opening of her back, of her black, clinging dress, showed the beginning of her full breasts. I was trembling. I was aware of the vagueness of our feeling and desires. She talked randomly. But now I knew she was talking to cover a deeper talk, talking against the things we could not express. I came back from walking with her to the station, dazed, exhausted, elated, happy, unhappy. I wanted to ask her forgiveness for my questions. They had been so unsubtle, so unlike me. We met the next day at the American Express. She came in her tailored suit because I had said that I liked it. She had said that she wanted nothing from me but the perfume I wore and my wine-colored handkerchief. But I reminded her she had promised she would let me buy her sandals. First of all, I took her to the ladies' room. I opened my bag and took out a pair of black stockings. Put them on, I said, cleaning and apologizing at the same time. She obeyed. Meanwhile, I opened the bottle of perfume, put some on. June had a hole in her sleeve. I was happy, and June was exultant. We talked simultaneously. I wanted to call you last night. I wanted to send you a telegram last night, June said. I wanted to tell you how unhappy I was on the train, regretting my awkwardness, my nervousness, my pointless talk. There were so many, there was so much I wanted to say. We had the same fears of displeasing each other, of disappointing each other. She had gone to the cafe in the evening to meet Henry. I felt as if I were drugged. I was full of thoughts of you. People's voices reached me from afar. I was elated. I could not sleep all night. What have you done to me? She added, I was always poised. I could always talk well. They'd never overwhelmed me. When I realized that she was what she was revealing to me, I was originated. I overwhelmed her. She loved me then. June. She sat beside me in the restaurant, small, timid, unworldly, panic-stricken, and I was moved. I was almost unbearably moved. June different, upset, changed, yielding, and she had made me so different. She had made me so impulsive, strong. She would say something and then beg forgiveness for its stupidity. I could not bear her humility. I told her, we both lost ourselves. But that's when one reveals most of one's true self. You have re re revealed your incredible sensitivity. I'm so moved. You are like me, wishing for such perfect moments. 
and frightened for fear of spoiling them. Neither one of us was prepared for this, and we imagined it too long. Let's be overwhelmed, it's so lovely. I love you, Jenny. Not knowing what else to say, I spread between us on the seat the wine, colored handkerchief she wanted, my coral earrings, my turquoise ring. It was blood I wanted to lay at Jenny's feet before Joan's incredible humility. When we walked across the street, bodies close, together, arm in arm, hands locked, I was in such ecstasy I could not talk. The city disappeared and so did the people. <laughs> the acute joy of our walking together through the grey streets of Paris, I shall never forget, and I shall never be able to describe it. We were walking above the world, above reality, into pure, pure ecstasy. I discovered June's purity. It was June's purity I was given to possess, what she had given to no one else. To me, she gave the secret of her being, the woman whose face and body had aroused instincts around her which left her untouched, which terrified her. As I had sensed, her destructiveness is unconscious. She is imprisoned in and detached and bewildered. When she met me, she revealed her innocent self. She lived in fantasies, not in the world that Henry lives in. Or most people. Julius, I think, in all of Anasini's books, the greatest creation, the greatest female character, and the ending of this relationship is one of the most painful, even brutal, uh, but certainly one of the most powerful passages she ever wrote. The ending of June, drunk with Henry Miller, fighting, drunk to vomiting, collapsing on a uh, mattress, being given a cup of coffee, and then giving her flowers, which Anais threw under the seat of the train, the violets. This is one of the, in so much of the diaries, the final personal and amorous life of the diarist is always a secret, or for later events or other times or something. But the one that is written out in the diaries, oddly enough, was the, probably the hardest of all, in many ways. The one that affronted convention the most, the one that took the greatest chances. Uh, and it is the hidden, probably the spring that makes this whole volume work. It's also one of the great tragedies that she describes in describing human beings, as she does so beautifully, that they are not characters, but real people. One of the great broken people in writing and in life uh, is this woman. It's a tragedy of omission. She never became what she could be. She was always a woman about to become a person, and always imprisoned in all the notions of what she's supposed to be instead of a human being. This woman revealed to Anais and also her destruction. Uh, a sort of terrible object lesson, I think, that women feel when they read it, that Ning herself must have felt, and perhaps in a larger context, the very unresolved character of this affection is one of the tragedies of omissions in the diaries. Thank you. This has been the Anna Isnin Podcast. Thanks for listening. Until the next time.